One thing we did learn from Kibby was Kibby told us the way in which he would get his victims. And there were three ways in which he would get his victims, he told the cops. And um, one was prostitutes. He would pick up prostitutes or sex workers. And, you know, it, 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 just as we've talked about in, in other episodes we've done, those are the forgotten people, right? No, it, killers know, right, that there's not going to be a lot of people, you know, looking after them for because of their lot in life right now. And the other way in which he would find people would be he would see he would look for people that were broken down, right? Like Charmaine Sabra um, right. and um, the woman, you know, who's looking at the map. Uh, right. He would come over and want to be a, a good Samaritan. Hey, welcome back to the Quintana Show. And today, by popular demand, we're doing another true crime. It's kind of funny, man, because when I meet people and if someone has seen the show or if they are a subscriber to the show, they're always like, dude, I love your true crime. Do another true crime. And I'm like, ah, really? Because, I, I, uh, you know, I, I, I'm interested in true crime because of my background, but... Like, it's not a true crime state uh, channel, but I have to admit, a lot of you really love the true crime. So we're going to do that again today. And as always, if I'm doing true crime, I have my longtime guest, Detective John Cabrera. Uh, I, I say detective because I think once you're a detective, you're always a detective. Yeah, it's kind of a kind of a badge of honor. I guess, <laughs> yeah, or right. You are officially retired, but I think you will always be a detective. Yeah. So you, you know, John was there. John has been there in all the big cases around the, you know, Sacramento area and knows a lot about a lot of the other cases in the region. And I think, um, you know, anytime I turn on a true crime channel, you know, there's a, there's a good chance I'm going to see you um, on, you know, any of these multiple true crime channels on on television. So you get around, man. Yeah, quite a bit, uh, given the fact that spending 15 years in homicide really opened the door to a lot of these major cases. Yeah. And so, yeah, now today I, I do uh, work with other major crime stories, mm -hmm. TV. So, yeah, it's uh, it's uh, pretty fascinating. Yeah. So. so I'm lucky the Quintana Show can have you. Um, but we're going to do another crime today, which is based in, again, the Sacramento, the Sacramento region. A um, little bit of it in the city of Sacramento, but a lot of it in the the area of sacramento um i tell you what john we've talked about this a lot but when it comes to serial killers man sacramento we take a backseat to nobody no i don't know why <laughs> yeah i mean it's um when you have to look at the sacramento region we've had so many serial killers either coming through here or have participated in their crimes here and it's when you step back and you take a look at how many murders that we've had here by mm -hmm. serial killers it's just astonishing it is astonishing like as i've told you before I'm, I'm i'm amazed that they didn't bump into each other right at the donut shop in the morning right um because they were all either here or through here um yeah just and even even if they weren't a serial killer like killers right like squeaky from shooting shooting the president right like literally four blocks from here i mean we've had oh, so many crazy people come through sacramento even when the legislature is not in session so it's uh it's pretty amazing yeah and it's it's uh they were all in about the same time you're talking about mid 70s mm -hmm. to getting into maybe the early 90s but in that period of time you had yep. all of these killers operating you know at the same time and of course that led to the confusion of um, who killed who? Right. Because you had this I-5 quarter, which is so large, you know, going all the way up through several states. And uh, you just had to figure out who was killing who. Yeah. It was the killing fields. So so you've kind of um, 
you've kind of introduced who we're going to talk about today. We're going to talk about Roger Kibbe, Roger Reese Kibbe, who's known as the I-5 Sprangler. Not to be confused with, uh, is it Danny Whitfield? Whitfield, yeah. Yeah, Whitfield. Whitfield. Um, who is the I-5 killer. But again, you know, the, the, the killer we're going to talk about today, really, we know that he was very active between 86 to, you know, the latter part of 87. Um, but like you said, you know, the Golden State Killer was active then, too. Right. Um, so was Dorothy Puente. Now, I don't think she did any of these murders. But my point is, you know, you've got all these murders popping up and you're like, OK, like, which one is it? You know, which who which serial killer do we look at for this at that time in Sacramento? Um, but again, so today we're talking about Roger Kibbe, who's known as the I-5 Strangler. You know, John, um, oftentimes I will take something away from the cases that we do, like the Batgirl Killer. If you haven't seen that one, you should you should really watch. That's one of my favorites. Batgirl Killer, 23 years old. But if she would have used her God given talents for something productive, she could she could be so successful today. Right. But she used it for evil. And I guess that's just how she was drawn, right? She was just drawn to do evil. Um but uh but you know as we delved into that case, I remember thinking, man, this is really interesting because this young woman like had one hell of a life by the age of 23. Let me tell you, with Roger Kibbe, he was just a piece of shit. He really was like there was nothing that I learned from <laughs> from delving into this case other than he, the guy was just a piece of shit. he was just a low piece of scum who just killed people right. and nothing redeeming for me to learn by reading about his case. There was nothing that I could take away from here and go, wow, here's what I've learned. No, I didn't learn anything. This guy was a piece of um, who also happened to be a murderer. So um, I don't know. Any take on that? Um, no, I mean, there was there was nothing redeemable about him. I mean, probably the best thing he ever did was he was able to trade the death penalty for life sentences. Mm -hmm. But, you know, I look at it as, you know, what are you going to do with him now? I mean, there was nothing to be done with him. And of course, he met he made his end. He met mm -hmm. his end. But um, yeah, there was he was just one of these people that just all he did was like to drive around whatever triggered him, because we know that these serial killers have mm -hmm. triggers. Mm -hmm. So he was driving along and it felt like it. If this trigger happened, then he would have a victim. Roger Kibbe was born in 1940 in National City. His father was in the military down in San Diego. And um, he was raised by a woman that he refuses to call his mother. Um, he won't call her, her his mother. It was that lady. And apparently he was abused. Um, he also had a stutter, which did not help. Um, he had a stutter. And so he was picked on at school. He was bullied. And then when he would come home, the mother would, from everything I have read by sources that, you know, aren't friendly to him. I mean, they're, they're not trying to cover for him is what I'm saying. They're pretty objective. And they say, yeah, he was treated very, very bad by the mother. I have to look at that. You know, that's just one of those things on these killers. Um, being an abused child, you know, never having an authority to do anything, always under somebody's thumb. And then when you become an adult, then the table turns. Now you become the person that is going to be the king of whatever you're doing. Mm -hmm. You know, you're going to be the one in charge. You're going to be the one making somebody else suffer because of what you had possibly gone through. Yeah. So yeah, we see that a lot where all they're doing is turning everything around. Well, and we see that early. We see him trying to take power early in little ways um, and also against against females because 
um, based upon reports that we have from from people that were kids when he was a kid. Um, you know, he was cited stealing, you know, women's clothes from clotheslines. Um, he would take them, he would cut them, and he would bury them. He had a thing about cutting. Um, not sure what that is. I think honestly, I think it's kind of a sign of weakness. Like he can't address the person so he would cut their clothes but that was the thing which actually helped nail him in the end but even as a child from what i've read he he had something about cutting women's clothes yeah there was something that he connected that Mm -hmm. to and like some of the other things with him we'll never know specifically what it was Mm -hmm. because i don't think he expanded on it to anybody when he was when he was talking but uh yeah there's always something that's related Mm -hmm. to it that it gave him power or if he thought if he wasn't going to address the individual by cutting the clothes that was his way of saying now you see i can do that mm-hmm. you know i'm hurting you in this way or i'm doing something mm-hmm. and so that you know that's probably what it was mm-hmm. yeah totally agree um and it, the another part that's interesting about this case is that his brother was a police officer yeah up in uh, the tahoe area yeah um so his brother and that'll that'll come in handy later not come in handy but it will play a role in this whole case later on um, because what he would do is he would ask his brother innocent questions like, Hey, so in a case like this, what do you think the cops would do? Yeah. And you know, the brother doesn't know his brother is a serial killer. So he's like, Oh, well, we would probably do this and this and this. And it allowed Roger to kind of cover his tracks. And, 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 um, as they deconstructed his crimes later, as they were going to court, they could see. Ah, he was trying to get rid of this because he realized that his fingerprints would be on duct tape. Right. You know, and so he probably had talked to his brother and his brother would, you know, would say, well, we can get fingerprints off of duct tape very easily and, you know, things like that. Yeah. So, um, yeah, you know, he would put a lot of the bodies are found in water. Right. And I think, again, probably talking to his brother, you know, you put it in water, the water is going to get degrade a lot of the of the trace evidence. And the hair, his hair also, you remember on the duct tape, mm-hmm. the victims had, their hair was cut. Mm-hmm. So what, what had happened is he was taking that duct tape off and cutting it off, but he was just cutting chunks of their hair off at the same time. Because see, again, uh, he knew that that tape would hold those fingerprints yep. by removing it. But, mm-hmm. but by doing so, he just hacked their hair all up. So the victims all had the same similarity yep. uh, with their hair. So yeah, he, that's, it's a good thing. And also mm-hmm. the other thing. Uh, he probably learned from his brother was the bodies were all in different places, not where he picked them up, but he took them in different places jurisdictionally. Right. So he might've said, well, who does this or who does that? Well, what he believed is if you moved the body into another jurisdiction, it would be do nothing but Mm -hmm. cause confusion. And I have to say um, that in the back many years ago, that did work to some extent. That's right. Um, I think prior to the internet and, you know, computers becoming such a large part of everything we do, it was like that. They would have a yeah. card up in Sutter County and, you know, in a file somewhere and it would have, you know, body found, but they're never going to talk to Sacramento, right. right? Unless Sacramento reaches out and says, hey, did you find this? And yeah, well, I mean, you were there during those days, yeah. right? It was hard right. work. So so Roger grew up down there in, in National City, again, uh, really, really driven to the ground by his uh by his mother, but he refused to call him his mother. I mean, actually, it was a stepmother, but you know, he, uh, he, he, I've seen interviews with him, and he would say that woman, I will not call her the M word. What's interesting is so that he ended ended up marrying a woman who was exactly like her. In fact, uh, when he first met his wife, they went on a date, and he 
did something to offend her and she slapped him and he started crying and she was like okay hey man easy bud i won't yeah. i won't i won't slap you again all right just be cool and uh that's who he married honestly she was kind of just like him too because later yeah. in the case we realized that she helped him hide evidence and he told her some incriminating things that she never said anything about until much later so um so so he was sent to prison a couple of times when he was younger it's very vague as to why they say nonviolent offenses so it might have been you know the the records have been sealed but i wasn't able to find it probably something would be along the lines of burglary mm -hmm. uh, which you could do uh maybe a year to two mm -hmm. two and a half years just a simple little a couple of years for it mm -hmm. and then they'd parole you back out that would be a non-violent that would be that type of mm -hmm. crime so so he 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 was showing criminal behavior from the from the you know the earliest days and he honestly was showing i mean when you talk about the perfect situation to raise a ser serial killer in that's the how he was raised right. which is which is when you think about it john one of the kids goes on to be a cop one of them goes on to be a serial killer it's like i guess that's how it goes right you're either going to say hey i'm going to make sure like I stop anything like this from happening or you go out and go F all y'all. I'm just going to create, create yeah. havoc. And it could have, and it, obviously there was different, different circumstances for uh, Kibby and his brother. I mean, they were just, they were on different roads mm -hmm. and uh, one was on the high road apparently and became a police officer and, he, and Kibby was on the low road. So he lived in a series of places during this period. He took up skydiving, believe it or not. Um, but we do hear that about serial killers often, that they like to do things which give them a rush. Um, I'm not saying all skydivers are serial killers, believe me, and that's not what I'm saying. But I am saying that someone that likes that, they need that rush, that thrill of almost dying, right? And right. so he had a couple thousand jumps. It wasn't like he was a he would skydive occasionally, like he had thousands of jumps. Yeah. Uh, but he, so he was out there. We know he was doing that. I know he lived in series as a furniture uh, salesman slash maker for a while and then eventually he ended up in a place called pittsburgh california which is near concord pleasant hill near the delta near the san paul it's near that near the delta yeah. how do you explain near antioch and yeah it's a, yeah. it's really an east bay yeah. community out there concord all mm -hmm. over towns pittsburgh yeah this is going to be where he we first find him acting um but he was 38 when the first case happens. Yeah. I find it hard to believe. And I'm going to explain this. The I'm going to go into depth on the first case that we have. The The way in which he set this up is really just jaw-dropping. Jaw There's no way this was his first one. No, I agree. I, I totally agree. Uh, but that's hard to believe that all of a sudden he woke up at 38 and mm -hmm. said, you know what, I'm going to go out and start killing a bunch of people. Yep. You know, this is something that had festered for a while, and then he went out and started doing it. Yeah, so in in, in September 11th, uh, or September 10th, 1977, he uh, he put together a scheme to get the first victim that we know about, a, a woman named Llewellyn Burley, who is 21 years old. She was working at Heald Business College in Walnut Creek. Mm -hmm. um, Walnut Creek today is a very, very fancy place, right? They have like a Ferrari dealership. I mean, it, it really is. It is a high-end city. Um, back then, it was not. 
back then it was not it was there's a lot of ag in the area it was really just walnut creek at that point was kind of a working class town and she had just graduated um and she was good enough to get a job as the receptionist at the place where she had just graduated healed business college um they were kind of training young women to be secretaries at that time um and so she was looking for something better and on september 10th she got a call from a man named john brown and John Brown said, hey, you know, I am uh, John Brown and I am going to be, I work for the Helena Rubenstein company, um, big, you know, cosmetics. Yeah. And we're opening a new store. Right. And so what we're looking for is we're looking for someone to be a, kind of a, a secretary. But more than that, also travel to Hawaii. Well, twelve hundred dollars a month at that time was like I was like four hundred percent more than your average secretary would have gotten. Um, and so, here is what I found interesting: Llewellyn Burley didn't get the call. The other woman got another woman at Healed got the call, and she was like, "Oh God, I want this gig, right?" Mm -hmm. Yeah. But Llewellyn had seniority on her. Yeah. So Llewellyn said, "Uh, uh, no, 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 I want that." So she kind of stepped past her and said, I want to take that call and I want to go meet this guy. And so she agreed to meet him for an interview. Uh, this John Brown, who was opening the Helena Rubenstein in uh, Pleasant Hill, which is right down the road from Walnut Creek. They had the interview in an orange van. It was an orange like cargo van. And she was like, what? This guy is not what I kind of not what I expected. Right. And he's like, oh, well, and it was at a construction site. And so they they met at the construction site in the orange van and he's like, well, sorry, but as you can see from the construction, we're building this store now. So we have to meet in my van. And she was looking at him and he was like in his 50s. He wasn't all that well dressed. He was just she said he was kind of, you know, gross looking, really, really creepy. And she was very worried. And he said, well, I'd like to do the interview in the back seat. And uh, she was a little scared because that seemed a little odd from an executive. Uh, you're doing you're yeah. doing an interview in the back seat of an orange cargo van, and uh, but she did it uh, because he had thrown out so much money there, right? She didn't want to pass up on this, and so they got in the back seat, and then um, she said, "Okay, but you leave the door open." And here was kind of what saved her a little bit is that there were construction workers at the site. And she knew that the construction workers had seen her get into the van and saw the van and they'd probably take a note like, what is this young woman, you know, getting into the van with this creepy dude? And um, and so he said, hey, I'd like to take you somewhere. And she's like, no, no, I don't I don't think we need to go anywhere. And so he got he got back into the front seat and sped off. But he hit a pole. He hit a pole because, as she said, he drove off, you know, kind of like just, ah, oh, we got to go. And um, and he hit a pole. So they got out and looked at the pole. Right. Mm -hmm. And that gave her the ability to go, OK, all right. Thank you. I think I'm going to go now. And he's like, well, hey, are you interested in the job? And she was like, well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I am interested in the job. And uh, he's like, well, would you like to do a second interview tomorrow? Because I need to make my decision. And the next day was a Sunday. Right. Uh, so he's like, would you like to meet Sunday morning? And she was like, OK, no, I, yeah. you know, I, I can't get in someone's head. But yeah. And, and there's you know, there was a lot of uh, cases that I had that were similar that, you know, something there was definitely something that had gone on. Mm -hmm. And you would think, geez, that would be a red flag in this particular case. I think she was frightened. But then 
I think he was able to convince her or like, hey, if I was going to do something, I would have. And so she figured I would take another chance on it mm -hmm. because she really wanted the job. Yeah. She wanted, I mean, that, she wanted that job. And that, that year, that was a lot of money. That's a lot of job with mm -hmm. all the travel. So mm -hmm. I think she just kind of set aside what she felt. Maybe it was her own mm -hmm. fear and just thought, well, this guy would have done something. People knew I was in the van. He didn't do anything. And I just think in the back of her mind, she just thought, okay. And just for that split second, just said, oh, okay, well, I'll do it again because, mm -hmm. you know, maybe it'll be a little different. So she agreed to meet him there, same place, in the orange van. Here's the problem, though. No construction workers on a Sunday. No. So before she had agreed to go meet him that Saturday for the interview, um, she told her supervisor, and the supervisor was like, look, you do know that that's 400% more than a secretary gets, right? I, and yeah, she was like, yeah, I know. And then the supervisor was like, no, that's not what I mean. I mean, like, that sounds shady. Like, I, there's something going on here. And um, she's like, oh, well, I think it's too good to pass up. So she went on Sunday. And um, before, on Saturday night, she had been hanging out with her roommate and the friends. And she was telling them, hey, you know, I met this guy today. He was so creepy. And she told them all everything that I just told you. Right. That's, how we, that's how we know what happened, because she told this to her roommates. And she told her roommate, who was a male, hey, why don't you come with me tomorrow? And he was like, okay, all right, let's do it. We'll go, we'll go. I'll go with you in the morning if you, you know, because he did sound pretty creepy. But what happened is that night he got too high mm -hmm. and drunk. And so when she came to wake him up in the morning to go to the job interview on the Sunday, he was just really out of it. And she felt bad. And she's like, okay, don't worry. You, I don't need you. We're gonna, I'll be fine. She was never seen again. No, that was the last, that was the last she was seen. Yeah never seen again and he was convicted of that of that crime right. but what again as you and i mentioned he was 38 38 and the planning that went into this to put together this story john brown helena rubinstein you know that the orange man right it's just like there's no way there's no way that was his first victim what yeah, are your thoughts no i know i i that's uh, yeah I, that's very questionable at 38 years old you just he just didn't start he didn't wake up and just say i'm gonna go and do this fake interview and get someone to come in there and then I'm going to kill him. No, that, that was, he planned it if, somewhere, possibly it worked before. And uh, so he was just doing it again. Yep. It wasn't something, I mean, he planned it out. I think he was much younger than 38 when he actually started killing women. I, I, I agree with you. And then right after this, um, which again leads me to believe that there's so much more going on with Roger Kibbe and there are so many more crimes that he must be related to. So right after this, he picked up a, a sex worker um, uh, and he uh, took her out and she said he just kept driving, just kept driving and driving and driving. He uh, really not only assaulted her, but, you know, he uh, physically assaulted her as well as sexually assaulted her. And he held a knife to her throat. And he said, you know, you don't want to mess with me. I'm the guy that took care of that Llewellyn Burley that's missing. Right. That's me. I did that. And as she said, I think he thought I was a sex worker, so I didn't count. Right. Yeah. So he could tell me anything because I don't matter. I'm just a sex worker. And um, but he admitted to her. Right. And so she finally was able to get away. And she went straight to the police because it was in the Pittsburgh area. Right. So she went to the Pittsburgh police um, and they uh, she gave the description. Um, she gave the information on the orange van and it matched up with his van. They went to his house and the wife came out and she's yelling at the cops. What are you guys doing here? Get out of here. Blah, 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 blah. Right. And um, he sees the cops and he runs off. Right. 
Well, what he did later is he went to the Pittsburgh Police Department and he go, I want to get down to the bottom of this. You know, why I'm being falsely accused and blah, blah, blah. And he starts throwing all that stuff out there. And, you know, the cops really didn't have any evidence, other evidence. But they did see on the front of that orange van, they saw a dent with a white with white paint, white, you know, right. paint exchange where he had hit that pole, mm -hmm. as was reported in the Llewellyn Burley case. But they didn't do anything. Yeah. They ended up letting him go. And then the sex worker, she didn't want to file charges. So she just wanted to let it go. She wanted to get beyond it. But he was that close to being caught yeah, that early. All he had to do was they could have taken some paint chips, did an easy, easy match, because there there was the technology that you could do a paint transfer. But yeah. Well, and I think also remember at this point, Luann Burley wasn't considered dead yet. Right. Right. She was still just a missing person. Right. So there there was that also, just if I have to give the, you know, the police some some rope um she wasn't dead so i think that went into their thoughts too look we, we're not sure what happened to her she could have she could just be off with a boyfriend or something and that's how people thought back then right um she is an adult she was 21 so yeah so they let him go and for the next 10 years he kind of lays low nine years he lays low yeah, we, we don't hear anything about him no. What are your thoughts as a guy that has dealt with, you know, serial killers and, and just killer killers for your entire career? What, do you think it's possible to go that long without killing? Yeah, you have to take a look at like the Golden State killer. He There was a period of time he stopped. He didn't kill anymore. That was because his DNA had come out in 86. So he stopped his, so he was able to do that. But he just called it a day, right? He quit. That's it. He just, that was the end of it. No more. Uh, with Kibby, uh, it's hard to believe that he just said, hey, that was close. I'm not going to do it. I think that he probably did other things that we just can't account for. Uh, I mean, because there's a lot of unsolved cases throughout California. John Doe's, Jane Doe's. It could be something like that. You just can't make that connection. But for him to, to sit back and do nothing, uh, no, I don't think so at that time. Mm -hmm. So now, John, the next time we, we hear from him, and the reason I say the reason I say we hear from him is because these are all murders that he later admitted to. Right. Remember, he only admitted to the ones that they thought they could tie him to. Correct. He didn't admit to anything that they didn't think they could tie him to. No, and I, he actually tells them that. When they want to know more, he just says, you know, basically, I'm giving you this, but I'm not going to tell you about any of this stuff. Mm -hmm. And so they took what they could. Yeah. You know, that was a six. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, he gave them that information. Yep. Knowing that he wasn't going to receive the death penalty. Right. I mean, that was that was the whole bridge. Yes, that, I'm going to give you this, but then he stopped. And for whatever reason, you'd think that he would want to give it all up. But I have found where even me talking to serial killers, uh, I had, you know, information that I thought they were involved in another murder. But for some reason, they wouldn't give it up, even though giving up this information freely. That's just like something like, I'm going to keep that. Mm -hmm. I'm going to keep that little souvenir. I mean, it's just weird yep. why they do things like this. But you got to look at their thinking pattern, you know? So in that, so in 86, um, this is where, like, it is just one after another, after another, after another. And that's why it is so hard for me to believe that between 77 and 86, this guy just, you know, like, you know, built ships in bottles or something, right? right. So, um, again, so in 19, in July of 1986, Barbara, Barbara Ann Scott, um, she was a sex worker and she was found dead strangled on an Antioch golf course. And Antioch is kind of in that same area where Pittsburgh and Walnut Creek and all that are. Um, and then on July 6th, 
1986. Um, Stephanie Brown, uh, she was actually at home asleep. And um, she had her friends had called her because their car broke down and the boyfriend, it was a boyfriend and her friend or her friend and her friend's boyfriend. And the boyfriend was an AMD or it was a radio DJ and he had to, he had an early shift and he really had to get home. And so they called her, even though she was in bed and said, hey, can you please pick us up, man? We hate to do this, but, you know, we got to get him home and we'll just pick up the car tomorrow. So. It was in Sacramento, a place that she wasn't really all that familiar with. And so she drove there, got there in about 20 minutes and picked them up, took them home. And she's like, well, now how do I get home? And they they told her, well, and they drove her out. They put directions, right? Drove a little, drew her a little map. And they said, just go to I-5 North. And that'll get you back to where you, where you live. And um, unfortunately for her, she took I-5 South. Now, for those of you who are familiar with Sacramento, in those days, I-5 South, it still is a little bit, but I-5 then in the, in the, in the 80s, I-5 South was completely desolate. Oh, yeah. From like, from the city of Sacramento until you get to Stockton, which is like over an hour away, yeah. right? It, there was nothing but pastures, um, marshes. You know, very, it still is to a bit, but then it was even worse because yeah. cities have popped up in the middle since then. The next thing we know is that her, you know, her friends reported her missing because she never went home and her car was found on I-5 on the side headed south. And there was a crumpled up map on the, on the seat. Um, the armrest was broken and the window was rolled all the way down. So it's almost, I think what they're, what they were thinking was that, you know, someone said, Hey, are you lost? Sounded like she was reading the map and someone came up and said, Hey, you know, what are you looking for? She rolled her window down and then they just yanked her out of the car. And then, um, she was later found near Terminus Island in the Delta. August 1986. Now, this is a case that you're intimately involved with um, or were. And, and this victim was one that really shook Sacramento. So Charmaine Sabra and her mother were headed back from a dinner. They were out celebrating. And um, about 3.30 in the morning, they're headed back. And their car broke down near Peltier Road in, on I-5 South. Right. So I five south again, there's nothing there. And so a guy rolled up, a guy in his 50s rolled up and said, hey, you guys having problems? Um, They're like, yeah, can you take us to a phone? We need to call, you know, somebody to help us out. He's like, oh, yeah, but I only have two seats in my car, so I can only take one of you. And so the mother kind of said, you know, the daughter is like, well, I'll go. Right. And the mother let the daughter go. And then so they go to try to make the phone call. She couldn't get through. So they came back. He actually brought her back. Yeah. And he said, um, hey, you know what? I can take you home, but I can only take you home one at a time because I only have two seats in my car. And the mother was like, OK, go ahead and take the daughter home. Yeah. Because she has a baby to feed. And he was like, OK, cool. And that was the last she was ever seen. Right. You actually dealt with the mother. Right. I did. Um, yeah. And Charmaine was really a, a really lovely looking young lady. Um, and so uh, when the mother came in and uh, they had made a missing persons report and I needed more information looking at that report uh, because it was those circumstances and I was running the uh, missing persons unit at that time. And uh, the mother came in and told us about, you know, what had happened. And uh, the guy pulled up and actually brought her back. And uh, and the mother just waited there until uh, law enforcement eventually pulled up. 
and then kind of said, hey, yeah, my daughter left and, you know, I'm still stranded out here, you know, this whole thing. So it was really odd. We knew there was things happening along I-5. So we had, I had to look at it in that sense, just hoping that, you know, something would pop up. Maybe the daughter would come about, but uh, a case went on for about a week. And then we were notified mm -hmm. that they had found her remains over in the Ione area. That's right. That's right. And, and they, so they found her near Ione, which is in Amador County. Yeah. But again, we're talking multi-jurisdictional. And that was in August of 1986. But here's what came out that was important there. And that was in the first time we got witnesses who said, oh, the mom was able to give like, you know, uh, uh, she was able to provide a description. Right. And so now they could put together, you know, a drawing of him and they have something to show around. And now they're also saying, OK, we have something on I-5. In September of 86, the remains of Laura Hedrick, um, they were found not far from where Stephanie Brown's remains were found. She was a pros she was a sex worker who was picked up with her boyfriend. Mm -hmm. And um, the boyfriend, they, they decided to go get drugs, right? The boyfriend had was her pimp. And um, he rolled up, again, a guy in his 50s rolled up. And he said, hey, you know, I'd like to, you know, engage Laura, but why don't we go get some drugs first, right? Let's go get some drugs and I can take us to get some. And the boyfriend was down the clown. So he's like, okay. And so what they did first, though, he's like, well, I'm going to take, drop you off the hotel. And then Laura and I, we're going to go get the drugs and we're going to come back to the motel. That's what he told the boyfriend. Um, well, she was never seen again. Right. Um, until she was found, you know, in the, uh, in the Delta. Well, again, now we have a second person who is able to corroborate the description right. of, of Kibby. And we also now have a multi-jurisdictional task force that's being created because people are realizing we have we have a killer on I-5 and it's happening all over I-5. You know what I mean? The bodies are right. being dumped everywhere. So the jurisdiction um, really is going to be hindrance unless we can all work together. Right. And what was good about that is that now that all the outside agencies uh, became aware that there was this I-5 situation, now if bodies showed up or they had anything, they could go to this task force and the information could be, you know, picked up a lot easier and you'd get more out to the agencies that way. But now there, there is, it's kind of like a co-op with all these law enforcement agencies. And so Kibby definitely had to be told if you if you take bodies in other areas, how do they investigate it? You mm -hmm. know, and he might have talked, but there's a lot of confusion. So another thing that's interesting, another point where law enforcement had an engagement with him and actually made him a suspect, um, but again, let it go, was right after the Laura Hedrick killing. Um, he was stopped for a traffic violation. And the cops, like, you know, said, wow, this guy looks just like the drawings. And they questioned him, right? And they said, hey, so, you know, what, what do you do? And, you know, he kind of told them and he admitted to um, engaging with sex workers in Sacramento yeah. and kind of admitted to a lot of stuff, which should have tied him much closer. But again, in those days, we didn't have the DNA that we do now, you know, the DNA testing. And they just felt like they didn't have enough, but they felt he was like, they actually called him a suspect at that yeah. point after that traffic violation. There was a lot of red flags. Yes, and, and they had to just look at how many red flags there were and then actually call him, you know, he's a suspect. So, so um, again, in December of 1986, there's another body found, and that is of Kathy Quinones. And, again, she was a sex worker, and she was found strangled, again, near Lake Berryessa. Perfect place. That's where we he ended up dumping. Uh, we found out he, had, he dumped 
uh, Llewellyn Burley's body. Yeah. That's where Kathy Quinones was found. Remember the Zodiac killed a couple. Remember the people there? Oh, the that's right. The Zodiac killer. He, he used it because it was Lake Mary is very isolated there. Yes, it is. I mean, there was nobody out there. Mm-hmm. So it was a good dumping ground. But then in June of 1987, again, Karen Finch had dropped her child off with her ex-husband. Her car was found on I-5 without her. Shortly thereafter, her body was found in a ditch near Echo Summit, which is up right in El Dorado County, almost to Lake Tahoe. And when they went and looked at the car, I guess what they found was that um, she uh, there were skid marks. Her car had skid marks and it looked from other tire tire impressions that there was a car in front of her. So what the law enforcement officers believe is that he probably trapped her. He probably like hit his brakes and then she had to hit her brakes and he probably went back to ask her how she was, right? right. And then and then took her. Um but that's that's kind of what happened. Karen Finch. Here's what it, what is interesting about this one is that this one was stabbed. Now remember he admitted to this one. Mm-hmm. But I think again it's those conversations that he's having with law enforcement his brother and he's realizing oh man I'm kind of I'm kind of creating an MO here. Right. Um and so I got to mix it up a little bit and so she was stabbed and she actually was one of the latter ones like she was one of the ones they didn't know if they could tie to him because of the stabbing. Yeah. But he admitted to it. You know, believing that by changing that MO that would throw the law enforcement off. Yep. But you know what's in the Finch case, what's sad also is that ploy where you do that, it still goes on today. Those are ploys that are still yep. used because you got to get that person out of the car. So here is the next instance that we have, which is actually where it all starts to come down. And that is he picked up a, another sex worker, Deborah Guffey, and um, he got her into the car. Um, but then he just kept driving. Right. And he's like, oh, let's go somewhere where it's hidden. Let's go somewhere and keeps driving, keeps driving, keeps driving. And and then he, he finally pulls over. Right. And then she said that he took her head and just slammed it into his lap really, really hard, like almost knocking her out. And then while she was down, he then reached around and was trying to put handcuffs on her. And she was fighting for her life. She's screaming. She's fighting. She's kicking the windows. And it's kind of like we talked with the Batgirl murder. Yes. Just so happens that there's a cop on patrol. There's a there's a I, I don't know if it's a CHP officer or a sheriff, but it, it said it was a sergeant. But he was on patrol and he sees the commotion. And so he's like, oh, something's happening. And so she jumps out of the car and he he starts chasing um, uh, Kibby. Right. And then he calls in for backup. They finally find Kibby and they are able to arrest him. Um, for the assault. Yeah. Assault battery. Yeah. Mm-hmm. While he's in jail, there another body comes in. And this is where the noose really starts to tighten on Kibby. Uh, Darcy Frackenpole, who is a 17-year-old uh, sex worker, yeah. um, her body was found um, in El Dorado County, which again is, you know, largely wilderness out there. Um, he made a mistake because he left the ligature that he used to strangle her he left it behind and it was a white nylon rope with like wooden dowels, right? Very, it was very, very specific. It was a, it was a homemade garage is what it was. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yep. Um, and so they start searching his car and while they search his car, they find a murder kit, what they call later call a murder kit. And in it, he has a white nylon rope, duct tape, scissors and hair bands and a sex toy. And it matched up very strongly with what was found at the scene of the Darcy Frackenpole 
court murder. And the cord was very specific. It was one that was used in parachuting. And as they went and used and did the background on Kibby, they found out. That's when they found out, right. oh, this guy, he's a skydiver and he's done right. thousands of jumps. And this is the kind of cord that he would be familiar with. But what they found was that the evidence, though strong, they felt it was too circumstantial to tie him to that murder at that time. They just felt it was too it was too circumstantial and they needed something. They felt they needed more, right? And they felt that the pattern with the with the cuts, and one thing we haven't mentioned is that all, almost every one of these cases, um, there have been a pattern of irregular cuts in the clothing. So like he took scissors and and scissors were in the murder kit, and he would just do weird cuts, which yeah. were referred to earlier in the show. No rhyme, no reason, just weird, irregular cuts in the clothing. And in Ray Biondi, who is the uh, detective who worked on this, um, he was called in because you worked with him. You right. worked closely Senator with Ray him, right? Biondi, I was very close yeah. with him. Uh, we exchanged a lot of information over the years yeah. in our, our murder cases. Mm -hmm. And I know he worked uh, on uh, the Richard Chase, the Sacramento Vampire case. Yes. That's, he wrote the book. And um, he is the one who came and said, no, 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 these are signatures. This is, we can, we can tie this to one guy. What they needed was trace evidence. And trace evidence, as you know, I mean, I, what am I telling you? You're the expert here. But trace, trace evidence, anytime two things touch, they leave they leave a, a mark. Um, anytime. But it's microscopic in most cases, right? right? But anytime things touch, they leave they leave evidence of having touched it, and it's trace. And you have to go, you know, very in-depth to find that trace evidence. Well, they had a person who could do that. And the woman that they brought on was a woman by the name of Faye Springer, who I know you know very well. Absolutely. Wonderful person. Faye comes in and she just takes all the evidence and turns everything literally inside out. Um, and so she is able to show that there are cat hairs that are found on the body that are also found, uh, that the rope has red and black metallic uh, speckles that are also found right in the rope. And that he has right. in his car and at his home, and that was caused by some sort of painting that was done nearby. And um, there was a fungus that was found, a, a there was a spore-driven fungus that was found on his car mat that was also found on the rope of Darcy Frackenpole. She turned the pantyhose that were used in one of the cases to to do something not so great, and she turned them inside out. And in there, she was able to find um, seat fibers that were identical to the seat fibers in his car. And so, you know, she could tie that that person was sitting right in his car. So she was the person that really made this happen. Right. Yeah. It's just, uh, she's a remarkable criminalist. Um, and, uh, over the years I, I submitted a lot of stuff, uh, to her and, uh, she was able to really make a lot of cases and especially had an old case that maybe I think it was, gosh, maybe, 20, 30, almost 30 years old. Uh, she was able to take a piece of evidence that we had found that had been stored, but never been submitted uh, in the case. And um, I was able to take that piece of evidence to her. And after all these years, she found gunshot residue. That residue was able to take it back to someone that we suspected. He was confronted with all this new information and he admitted to the killing, mm. a killing that was almost 30 years old. Faye, uh, they were able to use Faye's evidence and Ray Biondi's ability to put everything together, the, the police lieutenant from Sacramento. And on Valentine's Day, 1991, he went to a trial. By the way, before this, when he realized that they were coming down on all of this trace evidence, um, he called his wife and asked her to get rid of all this stuff at his house. Right. 
And she actually did. She got rid of a lot of it. Uh, she got rid of, not a lot. She got rid of much of it. The, the wife, I think, might play a bigger role in this than we think. So so she got rid of a lot of stuff, but they had enough. And he knew that the, that the noose was tightening. So he agreed to help them out on the case. The reason he got her to get rid of the evidence was because he had told them, if you just let me have time alone with my wife, I will help you with this. So they gave him the time alone with his wife. While he was alone with his wife is when he told her, get rid of all that stuff at the house. <laughs> and then he reneged. He did not help them at all on the yeah. case. And um, it took them one day, one day to sentence him. And on May 10th, 1991, he was sentenced to 25 years to life for the murder of Darcy Frackenpole. That's all yes. they had the direct evidence for. Right. That's all they could do. Yeah, uh, that's all they, that's where they were at that particular point. Until DNA occurred. And so later in the in the in the early 2000s, um, as you know, DNA started becoming a way in which we were able to solve. We could solve crimes and tie things together. So but what he did not know was that with Barbara Scott in that case, in that when they found that body, he had left a really, really good usable sample of DNA. And they were able from that sample to connect him with everything. Right. And um, they went to his brother, the police officer, and they told him, hey, man, you know, we think we got your brother. And here's here's why we think we have him. We've got his DNA from one of the from one of the victims. And it ties him to like all of these, all of these that we've had questions about. We can now directly tie him to them. And um, he he admitted he uh, the, the brother went to Roger and said, hey, man, I, I really think you, you you need to do something here. They've got you. So in 2009, he uh, he went ahead and he pled guilty to the seven as in order. And he got life for all of them. But in order to evade the death penalty, he promised that he would work with them. Yeah, that was a key factor. Mm -hmm. The key factor is I think his brother had told him that they're definitely going to hang you for, for all mm -hmm. these murders. I think that's the choice he had. And he, you know, he took the best thing that he thought he could get out of the that is I'm going to give you all of this. And, you know, I'm going to tell you I did all these, but you're going to give me life. And that's all he wanted. And he didn't help them, though. <laughs> he no. really didn't help them. No. He tried to help them in Luann Burley because he admitted to the Luann Burley murder. Um, and he took them up to Lake Berryessa and he tried to find it. But he was never successful in leading them to Luann right. Burley's uh, body remains. But there was a sheriff's deputy who stayed with the case. Was he yeah. Napa County Sheriff's deputy? I believe so. And he took it on his own to go up to the mm -hmm. same area and do the search. Mm -hmm. And um, on one occasion, he actually found a bone. Yes, that's he right. He found a bone. And mm -hmm. the bone turned out to be. That's right. Belonged to uh, the victim, Berlin. So they only found a single bone in 2011, but it was enough for the family to at least understand that, okay, we know this is where, you know what I mean? It was uh, uh, it allowed them to have uh, closure. Yeah, a little bit of closure. At least so. Um, but he he was a little hopeless and helpless in that. And he didn't uh, he didn't admit to any other murders during that nine year space. Right. right? Which right. he unbelievably did nothing nor up until the age of 38, which I find it impossible to believe right. that he did nothing before the age of 38. You just don't become a serial killer at the age of 38. No, I agree. I mean, if it was. A younger person, that's something you, you could probably weigh. Mm -hmm. He just worked up to it. Right. But he was almost 40 years old. Right. He wasn't mm -hmm. working up to anything other than keeping what they didn't know from the authorities. And that was, that's where he was. But karma is a bitch. And so in 2000 and 
in 2021, um, he uh, was befriended, but well, earlier than 2021, he was befriended by a guy, by a prisoner at Mule Creek State Prison by the name of Jason Boudreau. Um, but as Jason Boudreau put it, he was grooming him. So Jason Boudreau had known about the crimes that uh, Roger Kibbe had committed. And Jason Boudreau was considerably younger than uh, than than Roger Kibbe and also in prison for murder. They became cellies. And on the first day that they were cellmates, he strangled him. Um, very fitting. Yeah. And carved a pentagram into his chest. And as Jason Boudreau put it, I wanted to kill him on the first day because I didn't want anybody to think that I had been cellmates with him for a long time and I was okay with him. So I wanted, I wanted to show people that the first day I killed him. Um, and that's how Roger Kibbe ended his his career. So so looks like Jason Boudreau is the kind of guy that likes to take out celebrity murderers because he also <laughs> went after the guy that uh, has been convicted of killing Kristen Smart, which was a huge case in California. He attacked him. He didn't kill him, though. He didn't quite kill him, mm -hmm. but uh, he attacked him and he was going to mm -hmm. kill him. And this is after the Kibbe murder. Yeah. You know, this is, he's already uh, been convicted on the Kibbe uh, murder. So he's doing two life sentences, but he felt it upon himself to go after Paul Flores. So there, you know, so that's the I-5 strangler. That's Roger Kibbe. And as I said in the beginning, for, for me, there's nothing to glean. There's nothing to learn from this guy. He is just a piece of shit who murdered people. Um, there, was, there was nothing that made him interesting at all. Uh, for me, for me, because I he was the more I learned about him, the more I was like, this is just a horrible, horrible person with zero redeeming factors. So to close, I do want to say uh, one thing we did learn from Kibby was Kibby told us the way in which he would get his victims. And there were three ways in which he would get his victims. He told the cops and um, one was prostitutes. He would pick up prostitutes or sex workers. And, you know, it, 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 just as we've talked about in, in other episodes we've done, those are the forgotten people, right? No, it, it, killers know, right, that there's not going to be a lot of people, you know, looking after them for because of their lot in life right now. And the other way in which he would find people would be he would see he would look for people that were broken down, right? Like Charmaine Sabra uh, right. and um, the woman, you know, who's looking at the map. Uh, right. He would come over and want to be a, a good Samaritan. And the third way he would he would uh, he would find out uh, he would find a victim is that he said that he would just cruise the cruise the freeway. He would cruise I-5 looking around. He would see someone that, in his words, looked good. Right. And then he would pull way ahead of them and then he would pull his car over to the side and he would act like he was disabled. And that his car, he was having car troubles and he would try because he knew a car they were driving and he would try to to, uh, you know, wave them down uh, because he would act like he was disabled. And as he said, when they pulled over, they were dead. And so that was Roger Kibbe, the I-Fi Strangler. Thanks, John. Thank you. Hey, if you like what you hear, like and subscribe. It really means a lot. And we would love to have you coming back every week. Thank you.